I want to back up into verse 1 a little bit and where it says blessed or if somebody wants to get quasi King James they say blessed but it is blessed is how it's pronounced but um, I talked about this last week and it refers to a state of contentment the, the Christian standard Bible says happy NIV I can't remember okay blessed and, and Tim, you have a new King James, I believe. Blessed. blessed. And, okay, ESV says blessed. I have both of them open tonight and the new King James. Um, and so this word in the Hebrew is stronger than contentment, and it's stronger than being happy. Um, and to translate it either way doesn't quite get the full um, extent of what what it means. Um, it, it refers even to productivity, believe it or not. But it also refers to a future benefit. And that's how it was in the Hebrew thinking. The word blessed referred to a future benefit. Um, and, and so... You'll be happy, you'll be content, you will be productive in the future. It doesn't quite ring well as far as, uh, but, it, but, but it's, it's kind of a reverse in, in the grammar because it refers to something future, but it has implications in the here and now, right? And so, um, which... There are parts of our faith that I think are that way. And it's important to realize that this was probably the context. I referred to it a little bit last week. This is probably the context that Jesus um, was using when he did the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Because if you, and I'm going to read them to you just briefly uh, in Matthew 5 because When you hear them, do you catch the idea that the blessing is future or present or somewhere in between? Um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would that be uh, future or right at the very moment when you hear it? Or is it both? It involves a lot of different people, but... To the individual hearer or reader, uh, does it refer to um, being poor in spirit? Does that refer to the blessing because of that? Does that refer to something primarily in the future or now? It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, incidentally, that's how he begins and how he, be he finishes off this little portion of what's called the Beatitudes of for, uh, Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Uh, but I think it's both. Um, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. That might lean a little bit more toward the future. I think there's a possibility of both. I, um, Paul said that those we who mourn do not mourn without hope. And hope implies comfort. Um, 
uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The interesting thing about an inheritance is, is um, an inheritance is something that you actually have in the present, but it's something that you actually receive in the future, right? Um, so you still have that connection going on. The blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. I think that's both present and in the future. Um, Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Is that future only? What do you think? Who knows? No thoughts. What's going to happen? I'm going to hang on to that thought. What's going to happen to them because of what they are now? That's what you said, right? Okay, yeah, I'm going to build on that in a moment. But yeah, I would agree with you on that. Um, the peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the sons of God. I think that's for both here and in the future. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Primarily a future, but there's also a present fulfillment in that. Um, and so this idea of blessing or being blessed, going back to the Hebrew, going back to Psalm 1, but tying this back into what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Um, it is a connection to me with this concept that, I, that I, I share with you guys often of the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of God is here, but the kingdom of not God is not yet here in its fullness, but it's, it's presently working. I think I think sometimes when we read passages in the Scripture, particularly different prophecies, we see them as snapshot events, which actually the Greek snapshot event is aorist, right, which is translated into the English often what? Past tense. So we're even confused there, right? But I think we read these things as snapshot events when in reality they may not be snapshot events. They may be something that has a process. Like, when we all got in our car to drive here tonight, did we instantly get here? No, we had to drive. We had, we had, to, we had to go through the process, the, the trip of, of getting here into town, uh, unless you live in, in town. Um, but still, you had to come across, you had to come all the way across town. Um, there you go, right? Uh, so this idea of blessing or being blessed, it still does imply a future benefit. There is within the context you could, I don't know if this is really a good way to describe it or not, but I'm just going to throw it out here for you anyway. Almost like you get a down payment. Right, you've received some type, you know, and, and Paul referred to the Holy Spirit as the earnest money or the earnest, like the, the down payment. Like when you make an offer in a house and, and you put in earnest money, showing them that you're serious, right? Um, so, but it is a, blessing that we anticipate kind of a destiny. 
that we anticipate. But it's based on your relationship with God and his favor with you. So because particularly in Psalm 1, it starts out with blessed is the man who does not, which is this word blessed is often used in the positive. Here, the writer of Psalms is using it in the negative. And as, again, I, it's really debatable whether David actually wrote this first psalm or not. I said I thought he did last week, but the more I read about it, I'm not so sure he did write it um, because there is not, there's no superscript. Um, the superscript is the little heading prior to the first verse in in the Psalms, and not every Psalm has a superscript. Um, although there, some have interjected it being the way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. And um, that may or may not be an actual superscript. But many of the superscripts that we believe David wrote are attributed to him, a, a Psalm of David. Although there are a few psalms, and I brought this up last week, there are a few psalms that they gave David credit for writing that you read the context and it doesn't appear that he could have. He either wrote very prophetically, which is possible, or they are just attributing to him the authorship because it was written in the spirit of King David. Now let me backtrack and explain that just a second for those of you who weren't here last week. It's believed that the Psalms were compiled in their current form after the Babylonian exile, after the Jews returned from Babylon. They no longer had a temple. And eventually that will come together for them. But when they originally returned to Jerusalem, the city was in ruins. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are really all about. And because they no longer had a temple, the Jews were used to, and you could say in their, in their, their social thinking, they wanted a central point to focus upon in relationship to how they walked with God. They wanted a central point, a focus. Before the temple was destroyed, it was the temple. That was their central focus. So they come back to Jerusalem. There is no temple, but they are then remembering the glory days of really their best king, their very best king, and that was David. And so David, David was kind of right here, you might say, prior to the Babylonian exile and return, but after the Jews returned from Babylon, he kind of was elevated. And because, um, um, and, and it makes a lot of sense because, again, the, the, the uh, covenant that God made with David that he would have one of his descendants sit on his throne forever, which they began to piece together as messianic. And you see this in the writings even in, in Ezekiel, which is after they've come back from exile. 
there's these mentionings of David, and he's not, I don't believe, and there's different views on this, of course, but there's mentionings of David sitting on the throne, but I think Ezekiel is actually talking about the Messiah and using the name David for the Messiah. Um, so there was this close association of David and the Messiah who would return the kingdom back to its glory days when David was king. So that, that's what we'll see that a, a, you know, a few times uh, here in this collection of the Psalms. So, but they understood that being blessed was based on their relationship with God and obtaining his favor. So, go with me on this one. If being blessed implies a future benefit, and it's based on your relationship with God. Now, I'm, I'm, please don't think I'm talking about works here. I'm not. But it's based on your, on your relationship with God and having his favor. Does this not bring us to a place of anticipating a change in our own life? Can. And if our lives, let me use the right terminology. If we have everlasting life, I was going to say eternal life. and I mean, the Bible does use that term, but it really means referring to everlasting because true eternity is without end. That's infinity, right? That's God. Um, if we have everlasting life, wouldn't that necessarily then be true that the blessings that God begins to lay the foundation in our life in the here and now? Will we not carry that into eternity? I mean, I, I talk to some people who believe that God's just going to wipe the slate clean, and, and I, I'm not convinced of that at all. Um, I talk to a lot of people who not only God wipes the slate clean, but all of a sudden you'll have this instantaneous download of incredible knowledge. I think maybe that in part, but not in full. Um, I, I tend to feel like this is our life here on earth is the foundation for what God is going to continue to do in eternity. And in eternity, we will be completely satisfied. Whether we're, we're driving around in a big V10 four-by-four crew cab truck or Harley-Davidson of some type or a 1982 Geo. There we go. All right. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, well, I, I... No, the Red Mini Cooper is on the high end, not on the low end. You think you're going to take your car with you? <laughs> it might be. Um, it depends, but, um, and so there is that, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that is this possibility because I believe 
obviously life here on earth matters. It, it, the decisions we make, whether we follow God or not. I mean, we see this in Psalm 1, do we not? Blessed is the man who does not live like the world. I'm paraphrasing the daylights out of verse 1. Um, walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But does this bring us to the point of anticipated change? Now, I'll, the reason why I ask that question is kind of the direction I want to go with these psalms. to some degree, is in recognizing that most of these psalms are actually prayers. There were prayers that were prayed, often prayed collectively, often prayed um, as they sang them. Tim, were you... Were you here last? You were here last week, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, just remember, I saved these for you guys. Um, just some notes, some background for the Psalms. Um, but what is prayer? If and in the context of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now, this one particular author, and I really liked his take on this. Um, in fact, I'll have to refer the book to Eugene Peterson, Answering God. Um, but I really like his take on this because he, he looked, and we may not be right on this, but I thought it was an interesting perspective where he looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as the preparation to begin a life of prayer. And, I, and I, as I thought about that, I think often in prayer, um, we turn God into our grocery clerk. Now, is there anything wrong with turning God into our grocery clerk? Well, yeah, I, if it's put in those terms, yes. I think there's all kinds of things that are wrong. If you, you have not because you ask, not because you ask amiss, James tells us. And let your request be made known to God, Paul tells. I think it's the Philippians. Um, but part of the aspect of prayer is, is reciting these God-breathed, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? These God-breathed responses back to God in prayer. And... Um, but it's responding to those things that he's spoken to the heart. This is language of the heart that's been given to God in a response to the language uh, that he speaks to each and every one of you, hopefully, in your heart. Just through the events that come into your life, your responses to those events, that those types of things. And... and this is preparatory because what he says here in verse 2, now I'm going to tie this up because I'm sure this feels a little like, what in the world are you talking about? We're get, exactly, okay. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, this word meditate um, refers 
it's, a, it's an interesting word because it can refer to a cow chewing its cud. But in the Hebrew, it actually means to growl with unintelligible sounds. Yeah, bringing up the cud and chewing it again and then swallowing it. But it, it describes this act of intense or active pondering on the truths of God. And even till the point where somebody would be muttering under their breath. Now, when I, uh, when I used to do tile backsplashes when I don't recommend them, um, it was very, I, I was constantly having to divide fractions. And I, you know, it's, it, it, when you think about it, dividing fractions can be easy. But then if you've got to divide and carry the one or subtract the one, it, it becomes a real problem. And I switched, I actually switched to metric measurement because it was easier for me to, to do the math and the division quicker. But I had to really stay in the game because you're constantly making these little cuts around plugs and with the tile and all this stuff and the vertical and the horizontal and the other side and, and you know. So I would talk to myself and I would go and tell the customers, okay, I'm going to talk to myself. Don't worry, I'm sane. I'm just going to stay. This is how I stay in the game and get this job done for you today, okay. And usually that also kept them at bay so I could get my work done. <laughs> so, but uh, you got to do what you got to do sometimes, right? But uh, um, the idea of just kind of talking through. You know what I, I hate is like I'm out in the yard and if I'm talking through something and all of a sudden I look up and some, a neighbor's walking by, you know. And, uh, and Bailey didn't warn me. She was out there with me, you know. But, um, but that's sort of what this idea means is this, this constant reaffirming. Now, it says in the law, Hebrew word, law is used twice in verse 2. Hebrew word is Torah, which can, usually does, refer to the first five books of the Bible, right? Or as somebody wanted to make a big deal, Exodus through Deuteronomy, but whatever, um, But the word Torah means, you guys know this, teaching. Teaching. It does mean law. It's translated law. It, law is a good translation. But it also means in the Hebrew culture, it means the teaching. So in the teaching of God, not only number one, it's his delight. So I hope you have these experiences. But do you ever read the Bible? You know, don't show hands, right? Unless you really want to. I don't care. Uh, do you ever read the Bible and do you just find yourself fascinated by what and who God is and what he is doing and, and, and just kind of being in awe of this declaration of truth that we've read or you've read? And it's like, I mean, I do that all the time up here and hopefully I, it's, you don't really see it. But anyway, but... That's what the delight means, this idea of delighting in, in God's word. Um, and 
and to actually uh, find yourself happy, blessed, right? Present fulfillment, future fulfillment. Blessed because of your understanding of who God is. Blessed because your understanding of the nature of God. Blessed because your understanding of the character of God. Blessed because your understanding of the fact that you have favor with God and, and that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That's Lamentations, by the way. Um, one of my favorite books, but, you know, we're all wired differently, aren't we? But uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 and 17, it says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers. You see, he's kind of going back to Psalm 1 here. I did not sit in the assembly of mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. What's indignation? In short, righteous anger. Um, that's why I find it fascinating when people say righteous indignation. What they're saying is righteous, righteous anger. Um, but that's all right. Um, but notice the word was to me joy and rejoicing in my heart. And here he is, Jeremiah, he's sitting off to the side by himself. Not walking, sitting in the assembly of the mockers. Um, but it's, this idea of meditating on the word of God day and night. And so, I, I guess that's the question. I think it's a good question for each of us to ask of ourselves. Um, how do we work the things of God into our lives? And I remember I was at a, it was an internist or an internal med doctor after I'd had my thyroid removed, right? And we're talking and I said, yeah, I got to lose weight. <laughs> he goes, well, you got a plan? And I just thought, boy, you're kind of like, you know, nosy, no. And I, I just thought, wow, that was really a good question. He goes, do you have a plan? I said, no, but I'm working all summer on a construction job. I think that'll take care of it for me. And I was right, because the next time I came back, I'd lost 11 pounds. Um, but um, but I, th I think that was really a good question for him to ask me. I think that's a good question, really, for me to ask all of us, including myself, do you have a plan? Do you need a plan? See, I'm a musician, so I don't like to plan anything. Right? Hardly at all. Right, Mary? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, improv. Um, don't bother me with music sheets. I can't play them, play off of them anyway. Um, but he says day and night. See, the early monastic church ran with this idea a couple of times in the Psalms. 
And that was where you had the establishment of, of the different hours of prayer. And in these monastic communities, originally these were uh, monastics that were off by themselves, and they would do this, and then there was this formation of communities, and some of them, they would actually pray seven times a day. They would gather together, and they would pray seven times a day. Um, and they would often pray the Psalms seven times a day. So in a, in a <coughs> and Benedict charted it out in such a way that you basically went through all 150 Psalms in one week. Um, but there also the, the reference to the day and night is the, the morning and the evening sacrifice. Which is found in Torah. And so you'd have the morning sacrifice and then the evening sacrifice. <coughs> and what good did that do for Israel besides the fact that they were told to do it and they had to obey? Did that do them any good? It organized in what way? With the Jews, the morning and evening sacrifice that brought them in recognition of the penalty for their sin. Which the cross took care of all of that. But it did, it was a way of recentering them. And in, in morning, I tell you, in, in the morning, Especially if I have something to do, which I usually do, but usually by the time I wake up, I forget what it was. Um, but if I have something really pressing on my mind, that's really competing with my morning prayer time. And it's like, I just want to get started. But to be able to get re-centered. And then... In the evening, there's always the, 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 the tension of, do I just want to check out and do whatever you do in the evening, or do I want to do a, a, a quick more evening prayer? Uh, the author here says, I meditate on these things uh, day and night. And Psalm 49.3, we'll get there eventually. Um, My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give me understanding. Now, um, another, well, I want to read this. Psalm 119, the largest, longest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 32. I found this to be fascinating. I think it's actually on one of the pictures we have in the other room. Um, of the horses. Yeah. So it reads a little different in the ESV. I have it in the ESV. I'm curious what the NIV and the New King James and the Christian Standard says. It says, um, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I think the, the Christian standard says a little bit differently, so does the NIV, if I'm not mistaken. So, when, when you're looking at these different translations, 
running in the commandments where you have either set my heart free, broadened my heart, enlarged my heart. Um, to me, it's almost reciprocal. Circular. Okay. Um, it's particularly the way, I think the New Revised is what caught my attention, similar to the ESV, where it says, I will run in, in, your way, in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Um, follow my thinking here, and I'm going to tie this all up. As we delight in the law of the Lord, and as we meditate on his teaching day and night, it enlarges our heart. We, we gain a greater depth of understanding, appreciation, love, and commitment to follow the Lord. And so in doing so, we have a greater desire to do it. But also as we meditate on the word and we have a greater desire to follow the teaching, it also enlarges our hearts or broadens our heart or well, broadens of our understanding. So, which brings us to a place where I think we are able to enter into prayer at a deeper level. Which that bettering, if you want to use that term, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Because that's where the broadening of the heart really occurs. And... The best example on this of caution, again, is the guy that I knew who went to Bible college and did really well and learned everything. And, and, but he, 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 he would just throw the scripture around so arrogantly. Uh, it was like, you got your money's worth as far as knowledge, but there was no change of heart. So there's always that idea of why do I do what I do? Yeah, you can learn it but not apply it. Yeah, and so there's, there's that challenge. And then, um, but the person who meditates on the law, day and night, he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf shall not wither and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Now, what's interesting about that, there's a lot of interesting things about this verse think we're going to get done tonight. I'm going to hurry, sort of. Um, if this was written later, the reference would be Babylon. After they returned from Babylon. If you know anything about modern day Iraq, you have one river, right? It's the Euphrates. Um, what they did in the ancient world was they would dig all these little irrigation ditches to bring the water to off. They siphon it off of, you know, the Euphrates and bring the water into their fields uh, to irrigate. And the 
And so it was this idea of a tree. Notice the tree is transplanted. A tree planted, not a sapling or not a, but it's really almost gives this idea of a tree that's transplanted. So the tree has to be placed by the source of the water. And, you know, I'd imagine living in Babylon must not have been very exciting. It's pretty flat and desert and hot and all the above, right? But to have these irrigation ditches where, where trees were planted, uh, where it would actually bring forth its fruit in its season. Jeremiah actually taps into this. I don't think I have, oh, um, yeah, Jeremiah 17. Um, but this idea of being planted also refers to the fact that a tree, and you guys have planted trees in your yard, right? You guys are going to plant trees, yeah. You've done all kinds of things in your yard. Did you just plant them wherever? Or did you, did, was there a purpose in putting that tree in that location? Okay, that's the purpose. Okay, there was a purpose. So that illustrates the point here. The tree was put purposely where it was put, placed. Um, a purposeful placement. So it's a decisive action. Really kind of almost goes back to the question, if you want to grow in Christ, what is your plan to do so? Um, the most important part of a tree, particularly in the desert, is what? The roots. And this is really an example of abiding in Christ. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. And um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For your life is hidden with Christ in God. And water in the Bible is always a symbol of whom? Not always, but almost always a symbol of whom? The Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verses 37, 39, 1 Corinthians 10. And so, with that, the tree will bear its fruit in its season. Its leaf will not wither, and whatever it does will prosper. What is, what is fruit in the Bible? You have the fruit of the Spirit, which is given to us in Galatians chapter Five. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's then described in nine different ways, or eight different ways. Um, don't hold me to either one. I'm going to have to go back and look. But uh, there's also the idea of fruit is winning, winning people to Christ, Romans 1, verse 13, uh, and Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Uh, Romans 6 also says fruit is our godly character. Um, giving to the work of God, Romans 15, is fruit. Service and good works, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, is fruit. And then worship, praise to the Lord, Hebrews 13, 15, is fruit. Um, and then it will be like a, whatever, a, a leaf that shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And then the contrast, the ungodly are not so. 
The ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff, which is driven by the wind, and therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So you have this huge contrast, not only between godly and ungodly, not, not only between righteous and wicked, but you have a contrast given to us in these metaphors of a tree that's solid and chaff. What's chaff? Yeah, like when you thresh wheat and you would, you would throw everything up in the air and the wheat would fall and the chaff would blow away. And the wheat was valuable, the chaff was not. So, um, kind of interesting because one of the first things that John the Baptist says after he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, he tells them to repent but also to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Um, Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through 12. And so a huge contrast between something that is being driven by the wind, which is interesting because I, I didn't really catch this until now. I'll say this and just throw it out here. The wind is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, uh, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. The way or the journey. Um, the Lord knows the way or the journey of the righteous and knows uh, the way of the ungodly shall perish. That is, it'll, it'll come to naught. Um, so it, it really does talk about God's providential care for his people. And that God eventually brings them into his glory. And they receive the blessing from the Lord takes us right back really to verse 1. And so do we do this perfectly? Cousin Tim says, of course we do. Um, yeah, I think, I think we strive for, for just trying to be faithful because, and I'm still working through some of this, but sometimes you have descriptors in the Psalms uh, where it says that whatsoever he does shall prosper. I don't know if that's true each and every time. I also don't think we can take that and say if you're not prospering, it's because you're not doing, uh, you are doing, in, or you're not blessed because you are uh, walking the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the path of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scornful, and not delighting in the law of the Lord or the teaching of the Lord. Um, there are different explanations for different situations. What you have here is a description of things that are generally too, true, but you have here that is given to us in such a way that we can completely understand the contrast. Does that make sense? No. Yeah. And, and part of one of the elements of Hebrew poetry is that poetry is not not gross exaggeration, but it they it will at times do some exaggerating to emphasize a point. 
We see this even with some of what Jesus said in, in, in the gospel. Um, saying things in such a way that, you, that really grabs your attention. And you see that with the use of numbers and such. So um, you have here the way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. And um, the anticipation, I think the, the, one of the best things about this, this is a great psalm, but one of the, I think one of the best things about this is the anticipation of continual change as we are faithfully attempting to live this out in our lives. Which is a New Testament word called sanctification. Being conformed into the image of Christ. At least that's how I define sanctification. I'd have to trace that down as far as, I'm curious now what the Septuagint said, and as I drove and made that left-hand turn on the highway, I thought, I forgot my Septuagint, um, which is okay. Um, the, their works will not stand. Their, and so they will not be able to stand righteously before God. I think it, it, they're, Psalms 5.5, five, but the boastful cannot stand in your sight. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, the, the idea of standing before God. Um, to me, is still very intimidating. I don't know about you, but to me, it's intimidating. Um, but to be in a place where someone stands before God, not even attempting to follow him, not even attempting to commit their lives to him, um, it, it's almost like, kind of like, a, it takes us into a court imagery where you won't be able to stand before the judge. You'll get taken away, essentially. That. So that's how I would look at that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And look at the imagery in this psalm, like the chaff that's blown away. And, you know, have you ever, I mean, I've never threshed wheat. Probably never will. Um, I can, um, the impossibility is, it's windy enough out here tonight that if you threw, the, threw it up in the air and then try to go get it, it falls apart. Right? It will not stand. It, it's, all of a sudden, it's all over the place. And it's gone. And that's really the imagery that, Psalm says, yeah, your defense will fall apart. There, there's, there's, there's no substance to it. Um, anybody else? Okay. Let's pray.